Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Jasmine Smothers. Jasmine is an elder in the North Georgia Annual Conference and lead pastor of Atlanta First UMC, where they as a worshiping community are building affordable housing in downtown Atlanta. Jasmine is a bright light and prophetic voice in our denomination. In this interview, we talked about her story growing up, the daughter of clergy parents, the road to embracing her call to ministry, and the unique reality of being a young female clergy of color. We spent a great deal of time talking about her experience on the commission on a way forward and her grief at the events of the special session in 2019. But Jasmine has hope for the UMC and you'll hear how her grief gives way to excitement at what we could be as a denomination. This is a truly inspiring conversation. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this great episode with Jasmine Smithers. The Reverend Jasmine Smothers, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm well. How are you today? I'm good. I'm stoked to spend some time with you, and I'm really grateful that you were willing to join me on the podcast. Um, just really grateful for your ministry and your leadership. I, I think um, you bring so much life into every room that you walk into, and um, and I've watched it happen multiple times in multiple ways, and I. You're one of the people that I'm cheering for as we're working towards the future of the United Methodist Church. So I'm just really excited to have um, you and to spend some time and to talk about your journey and your perspective on things. Um, that's so kind of you. You know, you're oh. one of my favorite people on the planet. So I'm mm -hmm. excited to get to chat with you today. Oh, it's going to be great. So I know bits and pieces about Jasmine's life, um, but I'd love to just hear sort of the beginning, like how you became a uh, United Methodist Christian, God's provenient grace, working in your life, bringing you into our church. Can you give us sort of the beginnings of the story? Sure. Um, funny story. <laughs> there was a church in Atlanta um, in the 1980s that, um, was in a, a transitioning community and um, decided that they didn't really want black people to come to the church. And so the bishop closed the church and relaunched it um, with my parents as the pastors of that church, the um, church planters. Mm. And so I was the first baby um, born and baptized in the Great Hoosier Memorial Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And um, so I am a cradle Methodist. <laughs> Like literally, um, literally cradle Methodist. Literally yes. a cradle Methodist and um, a third generation United Methodist pastor. So um, it's it's just a really cool um, legacy and opportunity that I get to live into each and every day. Wow. What <laughs> was that like? I mean, I'm going to kind of 
you know, move in a little quickly here, but I'm just curious, like, what was that like growing up as the daughter of not one, but two clergy folk? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot, but it was normal for me, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Everybody else's normal was strange. Um, so my entire life, I've been surrounded by United Methodist pastors. My godfather is a United Methodist pastor. He's retired in the Florida conference. Um, mom and dad, a great uncle. Um, and the people who really came alongside our family, many of them are United Methodist pastors. I was the pass around baby at Gammon Theological Seminary uh, when I was born. And, you know, in that class, there's so many people who are leading our church today and um, who have led our church in so many faithful and fruitful ways. So, you know, you don't realize that it's kind of strange until you hit middle school and, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're like, wait a minute, everybody's not going to church when they get off the school bus. <laughs> Like, um, everybody's not eating dinner at church on Wednesday nights. Um, everybody's not trying to figure out whose church they're going to on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And um, when you go to the movies with your friends, mom and dad don't know um, exactly where you were, what movie you saw, who you were with, <laughs> who you were sitting next to, because mm -hmm. the community of saints has <laughs> made it clear that... <laughs> Um, they are the village. <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, um, and then, you know, my mom and dad have had incredible, an incredible ministry and um, are known far and wide across the connection. And so you, you also get in this place where you feel like you need to live up to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the best things that happened for me, and I'm throwing this out for other clergy families, um, my parents allowed me to go to boarding school and um, in Connecticut, <laughs> which was mm. very unusual in our community. And um a lot of pushback from my parents early on um, because it was so far out of the norm. Right. And mm -hmm. um, but it ended up being the best thing for me because I got to see a different side of life, a different way of life. I got an exceptional education, um, not just in book education, but in life <laughs> uh, education mm -hmm. and um, exposure to things and to people that I would not have gotten. And also I got to do everything I wanted to do without having to be on the school bus from 6.30 in the morning and getting home at 8.30 at night or getting off the school bus and going to church mm. um, because there weren't any other options. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that was the thing. And so um, it, it has been quite a spectacular journey. Um, and, and, um, you know, the, the old folks would say, I wouldn't take anything for my journey now. And, um, and I, I'm living in that space, uh, mm. now, um, that every single twist and turn has, God has poured in and, um, made those parts of the journey, both good and difficult, um, fruitful, 
uh, and and helped me to learn something there and to become the person that I am today. Wow. So Jasmine, when was faith, when did faith become real for you? When, when did it not just become the faith that you were raised in, but when, it be, when did it become the faith that you owned for yourself? <laughs> you know, um, I think it's in some way always been my own faith. Mm -hmm. um, people tell me stories all the time that when I was little after worship, I would stand up on the pews and preach back the sermon and sing back the songs um, <laughs> to my created congregation. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and some of my earliest memories are singing the songs of faith with my great aunt and um, in the car with my parents. And um, I just can't remember that there was a moment that it just became my own faith. Now, here's what I do remember. The North Georgia Conference had a spectacular, I feel like I'm using that word a lot today, which is weird because that's not a word I use, but <laughs> um, had a really incredible and impactful ministry um, that was called a Youth Annual Conference. And it was held at one of our colleges, one of our United Methodist colleges in North Georgia, and youth from all over the conference came. And it was um, sort of even a mirror to annual conference. And it was held before annual conference and hmm. the youth would prepare their legislation um, for annual conference. And we had this incredible and still today have this incredible um, youth um, delegation to annual conference each year that kind of came out of this. Um, thanks to people like Mike Selleck and Margaret Freeman and other folks who just um, really leaned in with us. But we had youth leaders at some of our black congregations who insisted that we be involved in conference level youth ministry. Hmm. And hmm. even if it meant that five churches got on the same bus, had the same chaperones, and we were five individual churches, but we functioned as one youth group um, for the purpose of the conference retreats and the, you know, um, and youth annual conference. And um, man, it, it was a gift to me. And the one thing that I miss about Youth Annual Conference was that, it, and I miss about <laughs> Annual Conference, is that it was so rooted in worship. Hmm. I mean, it hmm. started with worship. There was midday worship. There was evening worship. And the preachers were using young adults. And gosh, they were so great. And I remember being there and saying, okay, God, I get this thing. I'm in. I'm in on my own now. I'm in for myself now. Um, I'm in on on faith. And and that pivot point for me was I'm. I think before I was in on the church, right? Um, because mm. church was what I knew. Church is my family. Um, church is as everything. And um, at that point, it was a shift from I'm in on the church to I'm in on God. 
Um, mm. And um, I'm in on my own faith. And um, and that that was a shift that really served me well um, going forward. I have a deep and abiding love for the church. Um, I have a deep and abiding love for the church universal. I have mm -hmm. a deep and abiding love for the United Methodist church. Um, I have a deep and abiding love for the church that I get to serve right now, the Atlanta first United Methodist church. Um, and I have even more than that. Um, people who really know me will tell you um, Jasmine loves God in the city of Atlanta. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, it's really hard to find something that she loves more than her godchildren, <laughs> her family, her God, um, and the city of Atlanta. And um, and mm. it really is like my guiding point. And and I credit that shift to to youth annual conference. Um, and to really the, the, the deep attention that was paid, not only to our ability to move around in the church. I mean, they taught us Robert's rules of order and how to do petitions and legislation and how the structure of the church is. We work together in CCYM and all this. But what, what they also taught us was that worship was everything. And that nothing, nothing, nothing <laughs> works, functions, or um, goes without the worship of God. Mm -hmm. And so many of those sermons that I heard from my peers were just so transformational and grounding um, in a way that is carrying me through that has carried me through. Mm. What a testimony. <laughs> I'm guessing it was in that space that you discerned your call to ministry. Yeah, I stopped running from it too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I clearly discerned my call to ministry there, but I didn't want anybody to know about it because I didn't want it to be a thing. Yeah. Um, I, I spent most of my childhood in adolescence saying the last thing I'm going to do is be a preacher. And um, I was still saying that when I was about to graduate from college and that same youth group, that same young adult group, um, we had a, um, a reunion revival and brought back our children and youth pastor from back in the day whom this world gets to now call the president dean of gammon theological seminary mm -hmm. the reverend dr candace lewis yeah and she preached a sermon that i will never forget on isaiah 6 i saw the lord um, and <laughs> she painted a picture of the train in the temple and the trumpets and the seraphim and the call of God, especially when you feel ill-equipped 
that just left me stupefied. Mm. And I was supposed to take the LSAT the next day. And <laughs> I went home and I heard God clearly say, you know, that's not what I told you to do. <laughs> and I, you know, I thought I had jumped God, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. Thinking, I'm getting out of this thing, right? Um, and just I'm in this house by myself, and I am literally hearing the voice of God say, "That's not what I told you to do." And I'm looking around like, "Whoa, um, <laughs> what is happening here?" And and the Lord said very clearly, Jasmine, you have watched as people have run from their call to ministry. So you know what it costs. Um, you also know what it costs to answer the call to ministry. You can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can go ahead and do this now or you mm. can come back to it later, but you're going to do it. Mm. So it's up to you. What are you going to do? Wow. And um, needless to say, I did not go take the LSAT the next mm -hmm. day. Um, and once I got myself together, I called my mom and dad and I was like, I'm so sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to law school. They're like, it time. <laughs> um, and the rest, the rest is history. So. Wow. So you discern your call to ministry. And. You then go to seminary, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I went to um, Candler School of Theology. Now, mind you, this is late in the game. Um, it's May because graduation is around the corner. So maybe it's mm -hmm. April. And so I start looking up online. I know I don't want to leave Atlanta because I had just come back, you know, from boarding school and then college. And I, um, I just, you know, didn't want to leave Atlanta. And um, so that meant it was really Gammon or Emory Candler. And um, and I struggled with that decision because my parents are are proud graduates of the School of the Prophets, yeah. Gammon Theological yeah. Seminary. And I feel like in some ways Gammon helped raise me um, and um but I felt a strong call to go to Candler mm -hmm. and um, sat down and we discussed it as a family. And I was um, blessed, deeply blessed by their response that I should go where God is leading um, and that, you know, it would be okay <laughs> that I get to live my own life. Right. Which mm -hmm. preachers, please tell your children that they get to live their own life. Um, because it is deeply freeing and it's probably something you don't think you have to say to them, but, um, say it to them earlier rather than later, um, because it will free them to be who God has created them to be and to not try to create themselves in your image because you are larger than life and, um, you are, they see, they always see you on a, on a pulpit, they always see you on a pedestal. They always see you up. And that, that does something to, to kids. So tell them early 
um, that they are allowed to live their own life and Mm -hmm. that they are allowed to do and to be who God has called them um, to be. And, um, and so, yeah, I went to Candler and um, it was a a fantastic experience and it was a great, you know, it, I had been to Spelman College for undergrad. So, you know, it was vastly different from <laughs> Spelman and the HBCU mm-hmm. um, experience. Um, but also just um, deeply, deeply freeing um, as well. So Jasmine, you are ordained in the North Georgia Conference. A young black clergywoman. It's yes, been, I am. It's been rainbows and butterflies the whole way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what has been the joy mm-hmm. of being a young Black clergywoman in North Georgia and what has been the not joy mm-hmm. in that? for you? I'm glad you added that for you part because um, I think my experience in some ways has been different from some of my other sisters. Um, I've always been in cross-racial appointments. Um and there are a million reasons for that. <laughs> um, in, in while I was actually still in college, I was hired by a predominantly Anglo church as their youth pastor, and um, then um, I went to serve Atlanta First as their associate. Then I went on the conference staff mm-hmm. as like a church consultant. Mm-hmm. And um, then back to Atlanta first as the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. And um, that is a very unusual journey. Um, uh, some people like to use the word trajectory, but I think that's kind of counter to who we say we are as Methodists um, and the appointive process and all that. But um a very unusual journey. Um, so, so I think it's hard for me to speak to anybody else's experience, but my own. So when I talk, talk about joys of being a black clergy woman, um, I just want to talk about the joys of being a black clergy woman in Jasmine's skin. Um, yeah. 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 Um, So one of the joys is community, right? One thing Black women are going to do is reach out to Black women. Um, And if they don't, something's wrong. Something's really, really wrong. Mm. Um, Because in this world that we live in, Black women only have Black women. That's all we got. Mm -hmm. Um, And... (laughs) And um, I went to I went to the place (laughs) for 
for black women, Spelman College, right? And um, and I, I joke that Spelman's a sorority in itself um, because it's a deep sisterhood. I have heard and, that. I have heard that. <laughs> One of the joys of being here in North Georgia is there are a bunch of us who are Spelman and Candler grads, all different ages, all different years. Um, but I'm I either have the second longest tenure or the longest tenure um, in that group, and um, and we just understand each other in a way that a text message can go out and it'll just be like, oh, and all the sisters show up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that has been a gift because when you serve in cross-racials um, in cross-racial appointments, you're sort of like automatically um, in a way divorced from all the communities, right? Um, I don't know why we have allowed this to happen Um in our conferences, in our churches. But I do think that this is a universal experience that if you are a black church, a black person serving a predominantly Anglo church or even a multi-ethnic church, the black church kind of looks at you like, mm, are you still one of us? We're not sure. Um, mm -hmm. And then the white church looks at you like, why are you in our space? And so you really live between these places of community yeah. and you're just kind of out there by yourself. Um, it is the joy of that is that you get to form your own community. Um, and sometimes you are so tired that you can't, right? Um, because mm -hmm. you don't have a safe space to just, yeah. but, um, but when you can form your own community, you get to form a community that is, um, life-giving, um, hopefully non-toxic, mm. um, and a community that's really committed to seeing things in different ways. So, cause you no longer exist in a binary world. Right. Um, and, and a binary world no longer exists to you. Mm -hmm. So you really begin to struggle with the us and them language. Um, because you are both us and them at the same time and you have to be to survive and you may not feel like us or you may not feel like them um but your race dictates that you are us and your place dictates that you are them mm -hmm. and um and you really have to learn how to live in in a non-binary world yeah um, and, um, I count that both as a joy and a challenge Yeah. because I'm a part of a generation that 
wasn't raised in a binary world. We were always in, in integrated schools. You know, we were always, we've, we've never really been in classrooms that were segregated. We've really never been in boardrooms that were segregated. Now, they may not look like we'd like them to look ideally, but um, we've always had to be in a place where there were lots of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of young people struggle with church because they have to kind of decide who they're going to be with on Sunday morning instead of having an array of multi-ethnic, um, multi-social economic, multi-generational, multi-multi-multi-churches that they can step in and say, hey, I belong here too, and I belong mm-hmm. here too, and I belong here too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, we're so busy working on other things that we don't realize that the primary issue is that I don't want to worship in a segregated space. Yeah. And I don't want to do segregated worship. Like I like all the music. Like, I mm-hmm. like all the, all the things, right? Um and um and 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 we we spent so much time and money like on trying to get young people in the church, but we didn't actually take care of the thing that keeps the young people out of the church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right, I'm going on a tangent from the. No, from it's the good. It's good. <laughs> um, but that's that's my thing. Like, I get really really fired up about that because people walk into my church or they worship with us online. They really love to worship with us online. Um, and instead of coming in person, but almost all the children in our children's ministry are biracial, multicultural. Um, they're, they're uh, different kinds of face in the family. Um, like, Mom might be Catholic, dad might be Protestant, dad might be Jewish, mom might be um, Christian. You know, you just, there's just, and most of the children who are a part of our church live in a world that is non-binary and yeah. have it, helping their families find a church that looks like them is darn near impossible. Hmm. And and we're in the big city of Atlanta, Right. So I can't imagine what it's like in other places. Um, so um, so we've, we've gotten really committed to being that kind of church where um, not just everybody is welcome, but everybody belongs. And, and it's hard work. It is hard work. There is never a dull moment. Mm. And there is never... Um, sort of a level playing field, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, because because you are a black woman, there are always people who are going to side eye you, who are going to look at you like, what are you doing here? Who walk up to my lay leader, who is an older white male and say, you're the pastor, right? Let me talk to the pastor. And he's like, you actually just walked right over her. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, you know, but the joy of that is that I get invited into spaces that other people don't get invited into because in some way there are other people who feel like black women are much safer than um, anybody else who they could, yeah. um, invite yeah. in their space and um, to be their pastor. 
So, um, gosh, there there is a lot of joy. The you know what I have to tell you, the joy for me in the last few years has been seeing how many young black females the North Georgia Conference is ordaining. Mm, um, mm. It was not that way when I came through in 2008. Okay, mm-hmm. just 2008. Um, and I was commissioned in 2008. It wasn't that way. Um, in fact, I was the only black female in my commissioning class. Hmm. Um, and then I was joined by two others in our ordination class. But I was it in our commissioning class. That meant I was it in our residency group. I was it on our mission trip. I was it. Like, you have no peers. And um, then, but now, gosh, the last five years or so, just looking at all of these beautifully gifted, incredibly anointed, called women of God who happen to be black females. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, yeah, yeah, this is joy. Like, this is what I've worked for um, and through. And um, man, this is this makes the hard days worth it. Um, And you know, just being able to see them flourish. Um, I don't even know how to explain how that feels. Um, to go from the only um, to the old head. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And they're still not enough. They're still not enough. Right. Um right. And then this past year, something happened in North Georgia that I really thought would never happen. We got an African-American female bishop. Yeah. And, I mean, she is changing the game in all the best ways. Wow. And um, it's I, I get emotional. I tear up because I didn't know that I would see that in – in the conference that I love with the people that I love um, and with the people that I struggle with um, that we would get to this point. Yeah. I knew we would, you know, we have, I think we have what we have a great number of active, the most number ever of active um, black females on the council of bishops. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are still conferences that prefer they not be assigned there. Right. Um, But man, have you seen what they are doing? The gift that they have been to the conferences to which they are assigned I mean, it's mind-blowing. Black women are magic, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And and when I say magic, I don't mean in the traditional, like, 
magician, you know, juju magic kind of way. I mean, like black girl magic in God broke the mold when he made these women (laughs) and they are Can't nobody tell me that they're not called for such a time as this. Say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Jasmine, you've already talked a little bit about Atlanta First and the life of that congregation. I know that you all are doing some incredibly um, innovative, but also um, justice-oriented work as a congregation, um, really trying to, from my, from where I'm sitting, really trying to actually serve the community that you're in. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit of what's happening at Atlanta mm-hmm. First and um, how God's moving in that space. Atlanta First is an incredible community. Um, it is the first Protestant church in the city of Atlanta, and um, it helped launch most other denominations in the city of Atlanta. Hmm. Um, its current location is its third location, um, but it is Wesley's Chapel in Gone with the Wind, and Margaret Mitchell's family still is involved in the life of the church. They're still members mm. of the church. Um, and it is seated at, it is the delineation. The physical plant is the delineator between downtown and midtown. Hmm. Um, it also has had some bumps in the road. Um, it, it has been in decline um, for a long time. 40 plus years. Um, its senior pastor was um, one of the only senior pastors of the big steeple churches on Pete street street that did not sign the minister's manifesto to desegregate churches in the sixties. And that's something that the congregation does not like to talk about. Um, uh, and when Sherman burned Atlanta, um, it's bell was the only bell <laughs> that was preserved and it rings every Sunday morning. Um, The church is 176 years old and it Mm. has seen, it has been home to some of Atlanta's greatest leaders, like um, the founders of Coca-Cola. Grady hospital is our huge public hospital here. The um, Grady's have been along. The church has launched so many nonprofits and helped nonprofits launch that do so much good in this city and that um, really care for the city in ways um, that are hard to come by. Like, trying to prevent homelessness, right? Midtown Assistance Center is a a co-op that was launched through Atlanta First and the other downtown Midtown churches. And um, it exists to prevent homelessness in the city. Most everything else exists to make sure you have groceries after you're homeless, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, so it has, in its own way, been a, a really innovative place of worship and service through its entire history. And mm-hmm. in other ways, just like every other congregation, right, it has had places where it really need needs to grow um, and to serve. So fast forward to 2008, I was appointed as the associate there, got to work alongside an incredible staff um, and a church planter who um, began to blow some new life into the church. Um, But what we learned was in order to be an anti-racist church, if I can say, um, in order to be a church that serves a city that is as diverse and as complex as Atlanta, Mm -hmm. um, in order to be a church that exists for its community and not for itself, we had to do some really hard work around DNA. And so we spent the first few years doing that hard work. And that meant that some people no longer felt comfortable in the church of their birth. Um, To be honest, when I showed up, some people were like, oh, no, this is not my church anymore. Mm. Um, Mm. And other people were like, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so you take the good with the bad. Um, And um, and then the 2020 elections happened and that was really hard. Um, That was really hard because we had this church that was becoming really diverse and this church that was becoming really community oriented that then sort of showed some of its old DNA. And um, that was really hurtful and painful and and really difficult to lead through. Um, so I guess that was 2016 elections, not 2020. Um, yeah, because yeah, then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hits a community like Atlanta First really hard because you have so many people who are um food vulnerable housing vulnerable um transient and it's really hard to keep up with those folks right and so you are you're torn do i spend do i spend the bulk of my time trying to keep up with the folks that i know they're going to be there when i get to them or do i pour into my time trying to keep up with these folks who i know are vulnerable um, who I know don't have a stable place to live, who I know may not be getting anything to eat, um, who I know are really struggling with mental health, and this is going to set that off. Um, and the congregation usually has no idea about who these people are. I mean, I mean, when our buddy Tony walks in off the street, everybody knows Tony's homeless, right? Um, but there are some people who come to church who you don't realize they, they can't read, right? Um, you don't realize that um, when they came in the door, they they slid into the, the food pantry to get some crackers because that's the only thing they're going to eat today because they don't want to tell you that they don't have any money for groceries, right? Um, 
and and nobody nobody really knows that but when you're their pastor it's your responsibility to know those things um and then you know you get you really struggle to know how to manage all of that at the same time so um so i think it was before the pandemic but really leaning into um how are we going to really be the church for this community um and we did a <laughs> we're going at general conference 2019 i started my speech talking about the i dream a church campaign that was very active when I was a youth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so we did I Dream a Church series right before the pandemic and mm. had folks talk about, you know, what they what they believe that God was saying to them about the future of the church and specifically the future of the church at Atlanta first. And um, over and over and over again, people's dream cards came back and they said, um, how do we help those who are hungry? How do we help those who are on the margins? How do we help those who are um, uh, need housing? How, how do we help folks get jobs? You know, it was all about how do we serve our community? And that made my little pastor heart so proud. (laughs) And so the leadership team got together and said, okay, how can we make the biggest impact with the most amount of people, with the resources that God has given us right now. Um, and that came down to sacrificing some things on our side so that we could make some new partnerships and provide affordable, attainable wor- workforce and market rate housing right on the property of the church at the delineator of Midtown and Downtown Atlanta. Okay. Um, so that is where we have really focused our energy, uh, to really develop and create a place, a campus, the 360 Peachtree Street campus that is for all of God's people. And, Mm -hmm. um, that is a place, uh, sort of a one-stop shop, um, live, work, play, (laughs) um, worship, right? Live, work, play, Mm -hmm. worship, Mm -hmm. development where we can literally do the work of interrupting the generational poverty, um, interrupting the school to prison pipeline, um, getting children out of their cars um, and into homes um, so that they can actually pay attention when they get to school. Um, And they don't feel like they need to have a job at 12 years old with the local drug dealer so that they can get out of their car and have a place to live. This stuff is real Um, and it's happening every day. And um, babies are, are, raising themselves because things are that hard. Right. Mm -hmm. And so here Mm -hmm. we are dead smack in the middle of the city. That's too busy to hate the black Mecca in the South and the, the city that has so many um, well, uh, well working, well doing, well meaning people in it and African-Americans in it, but these people keep coming to the city and they're not realizing the Atlanta dream, right? Um, 
because man, it's not affordable to live in Atlanta anymore. And we were putting, we were putting so much money into putting people on the bus to send them back to where they came from um, that we were like, you know, if we put this money into housing services, teaching folks how to do the things that you don't learn if you've grown up on the streets or if your mom has been at work your entire life, just trying to keep uh, the lights on, you know, um, if we can do this, then maybe we won't have to buy so many bus tickets back to wherever and send them back to pretty much a terrible situation that they were in, but yeah. better than living on the streets of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I, I am immensely proud of the Atlanta first United Methodist congregation and how it has just really opened itself to be in the city's church, opened itself to being a place of service um, uh, and really opened itself to utilizing the gifts that God has given them over the last 176 years to make um, this, this project come to fruition. Wow. So when it's all said and done, um, there'll be two towers that end up having 300 units, um, studio apartments, one bedrooms, two bedrooms and three bedrooms. And these will be the first three bedrooms in downtown Atlanta on Peachtree Street. So that means that now families can live downtown and they don't have to spend all their money commuting. Right. Um, and um, and and. We're so excited about the potential that this has to transform the community because after all the mission <laughs> is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, just like I tell my Bible study every week, this is not about gaining information, right? Mm -hmm. This is, is not about who can recite the most Bible verses. It's about behavior. It's about transformation of behavior. If you are the same hateful person that you were 20 years ago and you've been sitting on a pew every Sunday of those 20 years, something is not right. Okay. Um, this relationship with Jesus Christ and the work of the church is about transformation. And it's not just about personal transformation. It's about commit co um, communal and community transformation so that everybody Everybody is doing better. Everybody gets a chance to live this abundant life that Jesus Christ has taught us um, about and that Jesus Christ came to give us and that we are abdicating over and over and over again. Amen. Wow. I could harp on that all day, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And so you were a part of the commission on the way forward. It was a 32 member group. Am I remember that correctly? I think so. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I, mean, I, have lots of, yeah. I mean, I have lots of questions about your, your participation on, on the commission. 
and we have lots of things that we can talk about as uh, the result of that work. But I'm I'm wondering why you said yes to it. Why'd you say yes to being on the commission? Because my bishop asked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest. Um, so I had just been appointed to Atlanta first. And in June of that year. And um, and my bishop was retiring. We were getting a new bishop in September. And he was like, um, I want you to to do this commission on the way forward. And I was like, uh, okay. (laughs) And I mean, you have a lot of hesitation about that. Yes. Because you don't really get a lot of information. (laughs) And you're just starting in this church that, you know, is going to be a huge, huge, um, place of service and a huge undertaking. And, um, and I wasn't expecting it at all, but I mean, I, I, and I probably could have said no, um, because our our Bishop at the time, he was gracious like that. He would let you say no, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) he, um, and he would be really clear you can say no to this. You cannot say no to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I appreciate clarity. Yeah. So, um, but um, it also kind of intrigued me. Um, just the whole notion that we might be able to bring some kind of resolution to a fight that's really been going on since the seventies and for some people, the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause remember I told you, I love the church. I knew that there were going to be people in the room who were smarter than me, who had been working on legislation around this for um, a long time, um, who had a lot more at stake um, than I had it at stake. And, um, who really had a a vision um, for the future of the church. And um, at some point, I think I thought that the commission on the way forward was to really sort of help envision a next generation United Methodist Church. Hmm. And um, in many ways, that's not what it ended up being. Right. Um, but it did allow us to kind of voice back to I Dream of Church, right? Mm-hmm. Voice our dreams and visions um, for the future of the church in that place in a, in a way that, you know, people sort of do in the parking lot, but that never really gets to the real meeting where action mm-hmm. is taken. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I guess I said yes because I have been for a long time, like through the Young People's Ministry, Division on Young People's Ministry, even before we had the Division on Young People's Ministry, um, when it was just discipleship, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
through two quads on the ministry study, um, you know, I'd really thought a lot about, man, what could the future of the church be? And what could happen if we really had an opportunity to dream about a next generation church? So what was it like in the room with your colleagues and yeah. <laughs> um, it depends on what, what room we were in. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think at the very beginning there, there was healthy hope and healthy cynicism. Um, that there have been people who had worked on this thing. We got this figured out. And then they called for this commission and um, we had this figured out and they thought, okay, we'll just bring what we figured out and work on that. And then there were people who are like, we're never going to figure this out. Why are we in this room? Um, and then there were people who were like, let's just see what God wants to do. Um, and those are my kind of people. <laughs> um, so I gravitated very early to those kind of people um, who seemed to not be agenda driven, but to be spirit driven. And were genuinely concerned with both faith and church. Um, and I know a lot of people don't separate them, but I do because in my generation, they are very different. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction for people to hear that church and faith are not the same thing. Yeah. Um, but these folks had um, a real love for God and a real love for the church. And they really wanted to be spirit driven to see what God would do. Now that, uh, original sense of all of those different things morphed over time as we tried our best to work together. Um, and there were some places where we, we figured out really early on that there was going to be no movement um, that we would not be able to come to. I think the original design for the commission was that there would be one report and that we would all agree that this was the way forward. And that is not at all what happened. <laughs> right, right. There were three reports and several mm -hmm. minority reports. Mm -hmm. um, and that was frustrating. It was really frustrating. And it was disappointing um, that we had been tasked with something that we really couldn't achieve. Um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a goal oriented, get it done, get it done, get it done kind of person. <laughs> I'm a one on the Enneagram <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, that was really hard realization when we got to the point that there are people in this room that I have loved and I have respected, um, that are not here for the same reason that I'm here. And there are people in this room who are beyond this already, and they have a totally different goal than um, than 
the goal that was stated for the commission. That was heartbreaking. Um, and to know that there were people that I loved, looked up to, considered friends um, and collaborative partners who turned out not to be that. Um, but then I also met some people who I had not had the benefit of knowing before. Um, I had heard of Alice Williams, the amazing, incredible Alice Williams. Yeah. Yeah. is your co-lay leader uh, in mm -hmm. Florida. We, she'd um, done a, a, a presentation for us at an um, event that Florida and North Georgia and Tennessee hosted together, mm -hmm. um, MLAB. Yep. And yep. I kind of adored her from afar <laughs> during that. And then I ended up getting to sit down next to her and I was just mind blown. Like mm -hmm. Alice Williams is one of those people you sit down in her presence and you know, you're never going to be the same. Exactly. Um, exactly. And she calls you to your highest place, right? Mm -hmm. Your highest place of praise, your highest place of devotion to God, your highest place of love for people. Mm -hmm. um, and she makes you want to be a better person than you are. <laughs> mm. and um and so there was that gift right there was the yeah. gift of alice and now bishop uh tom berlin and mm -hmm. i mean so 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 many others um julie hager love i mean just these people who are really there because they love god and love the church mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and then you know our moderators did I would not have wanted their job um, ever in life because with so many strong personalities in the room who are used to being, I mean, everybody in that room is used to being in charge. Everybody in that room is used to being a leader. Everybody in that room knows how to run a meeting. Yeah. Everybody in that room knows the games that get played in United Methodist meetings. I mean, everybody in that room is a high level, effective leader and they have all come with a purpose and a plan. And then you've got these three bishops who are supposed to be moderating this conversation. God bless them. Good uh, luck. Yeah. Yeah. And God bless them that anything got done at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, I just can't imagine that they didn't sometimes feel like they were trying to like shoot ants in a barrel or something. <laughs> just crazy. <laughs> All the time. Like, mm. um, I think in the room, though, we did our best to always be respectful of each other. And that's one takeaway that I can say. Um, I have been in rooms where we have not been respectful of each other and we have not even tried to be respectful of each other. And in this room, there was permission to be respectful and expectation to be respectful and expectation to learn what we didn't know and to assume that there was something that we did not know. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was also permission to call somebody out if 
we were not being respectful. There was a covenant that we were held accountable to. And that was different because usually there's a covenant and nobody is ever held accountable to it. But we were held accountable to that covenant. People outside the room did not abide by the covenant. Um, and that was very hurtful and very mm-hmm. harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it made the commission look suspicious um instead of allowing us to do our work um and do it in a way where we could try to trust each other um and i think at the end of the day In the room, there was a sense of, well, we've done the best we can with what we had for such a time as this. Um, And there was some sense of hope that the majority report, the one one, um, church plan, would pass. That was, it was an expectation um, from the group. But there was also an expectation that all the other plans would get the same airtime. And um, that's, I think that's when we knew that this was going to be a bumpier ride than anticipated. Jasmine, we know that the outcome of the special session of 2019 was the passage of the traditional plan, which was not the majority report, was not the plan endorsed by the Council of Bishops, but that's the plan that passed that by the simple majority. Looking back on the commission's work, is there anything you wish you had done differently? And I, uh, I'll ask that anything you wish you had done differently individually, and then the follow-up, anything you wish the commission as a whole might have done differently? I, I'd step back even a little bit further. Um, mm, mm. I think that the way the commission was named and created could have been done differently and could maybe could have been done in a way that fostered a little bit of trust in the church. I mean, Mm -hmm. it sort of started under a cloud of, of, of secrecy for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I ever felt that, but I was in the room. Right. Mm. Um, uh, but um, and our first two meetings were spent building relationships and people took the lack of report after the first two meetings as they're trying to keep stuff from us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Then there was media that was not helpful to that. 
um, that just kind of played into that um, sense of rumor. So I, I just kind of feel like we were sunk from the beginning because the church didn't buy in. Hmm. Um, and so at the very beginning, I mean, there are bishops that didn't buy in. <laughs> hmm. mm-hmm. um, so at the very beginning, from the very beginning, it was a very hard operation. Yeah. And I don't think we ever came back from that. So by the time we got to general conference, there was zero trust and zero buy-in um, because of how it started. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's anything we could have done to turn that around after those news reports were published. Mm-hmm. Um. I think I think maybe I was a little Pollyanna-ish about the situation. Hmm. Um, I, I tend to be an optimist. Um, and I mean, on my social media accounts, my bio says, is a quote, right? Is a quote that says, mm-hmm. now that we've exhausted all the possibilities, let's get started. And that's just kind of the way, like, mm-hmm. I live my life. Tell me something's impossible. Let's go do it. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's see what God is going to do, right? Because um, there, nothing is impossible with God. And and that's how I approach the, the commission as well. Like, well, let's just do it, you know? And um, and I, I think I really underestimated the forces that were at work to make sure that we didn't do it. Hmm. And um, and really educating the people of God about spiritual warfare. I mean, it is it is in evil's best interest for the church not to be united, for the church mm-hmm. not to function well, for the mm-hmm. church to get distracted from its mission. And we allowed that to happen because we we did not do any education around spiritual, um, the forces of spiritual wickedness, right? Mm. <laughs> um, wow. We say that it's biblical, it's in our, in, it's in our membership vows and our baptismal vows, but I'm not sure we understand what that means and how evil can work in our world, even with and through well-meaning people to try to destroy what is God's. Now, I say try to destroy because you can't destroy um, what is God's. Um, You don't have that much power and you think you can, but um, just wait and see. Buckle up, Buttercup, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. everything I know about the God that I serve, everything that I read in the Bible, everything that I've heard from the elders, everything that I've seen with my own two eyes says at the end of the day, God wins, period. And whatever your motive was, whether good, bad, or indifferent, it is God's will that wins. Yeah. It may take a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here in the beautiful state of Georgia, we are seeing some things in motion that were set up in the 40s, in the 50s, and the 60s, and it has taken this long for them to come back around. But good Lord, the Lord is having the last word here. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so, and that's what I've told my church. I'm like, you can't destroy what is God's. You can't. Hmm. 
you don't have that power. Um, and so we're just going to do our best to follow the will of God as we discern and understand it. And other people are going to do that too. And we're going to let them do what they do. Um, and we are going to do our best to call out what is evil, what are, what is spiritual wickedness, what is spiritual, um, immaturity, what is spiritual maturity, what is spiritual warfare and what is a blessing from God. We're going to do our best to keep those things straight. And if we can keep those things straight, we'll continue to move in the will of God and wherever God leads us, that's where we will follow. Yeah. And, um, I kind of I wish I had been stronger in that conviction in the moment in those mm-hmm. rooms mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. of the commission. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in something, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's you're, I uh, mean, you're working yeah. so hard toward the task and trying to ignore the sabotage that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have any other energy. I mean, when we came home from those meetings, we slept for days. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and some mm-hmm. of us didn't have the privilege of sleeping for days, but you would just drag and drag and drag. It was like you, it took every ounce of energy that you had to be present. Mm. My God. And I don't mean to say that in, in, a, in a bad way, because no. sometimes that energy was expended in the best way. Mm-hmm. And you still like, I need a nap for a yeah. very long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so real. Yeah. So lots has happened since that special session. And I'm curious of your personal take, and it may be similar to some of the stuff you've already said, but the passing of the traditional plan um, and the annual conference season in the U.S. that came after that, that was a response to that, to the passing of the traditional plan. Um, And then COVID, Mm. well, protocol gets, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. put in front of us. And then COVID, postponing general conference many times, the launch of the GMC, just so many different things that's happened. What's your personal feeling of this season in the United Methodist Church right now, like how are you, how are you feeling? And North Georgia has experienced some very specific uh, events related to all of this. What has been what has been your thought process these last few years um, around the United Methodist Church? Yeah. So this is probably the first time I've talked about this stuff in a long time because I just um, I just stopped talking about it and and sort of retreated because it was all consuming. Yeah. And um, there was significant grief for me personally um, after the 2019 special session. It was. um, I don't know how you talk about being in that room. without viscer- viscerally feeling the harm that was done, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the mean and underhanded s- 
situations <laughs> um, that were that were taking place. Um, and just how people fail to recognize when something is about power and not about God. Um, and, and for a long time, I, I lost a lot of respect for people that I had respected. Um, Mm-hmm. And I, I think now I am I'm seeing my colleagues really begin to understand the impact of the Commission on the Way Forward, the outcome of GC 2019, the protocol, COVID. And man, it's too late. <laughs> yeah yeah um, and it's like we tried to tell you <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we have such so much distrust in our system um when we said that we didn't do anything at that meeting but try to learn each other that's really all we did at that meeting <laughs> like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we were telling you the truth. Nobody was lying. Um, mm-hmm. um, so it, oh gosh. And I think in some ways I'm still grieving. Hmm. Um, I grieve for a church that could have been every time, every time we say the prayer of confession which is uh, over communion, which is once a month at our church and sometimes more. Every time I say the words, we have failed to be an obedient church. Yeah. I think of the 2019 session Mm. and it breaks my heart all over again. Um, And so at this point, um, I think that we need and this is probably maybe an unpopular opinion because of the polity of the church and the, the, the very real financial impact and the very real toll on families and communities. We will have whole communities in North Georgia that do not have a United Methodist um, congregation in them and whole churches in North Georgia where the closest United Methodist sister or brother congregation to them will be 30, 40, 50 minutes away. Um, And that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because the United Methodist Church at its root and when it really understands its history and its theology is liberating for the world today. And instead, we're pushing people away um, in all the different expressions. (laughs) Um, And so... Um, so I want this process of disaffiliation to be done with, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody go to your house (laughs) Mm -hmm. and stop messing around in mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause that's about to send me over the edge. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, 
you already know you're going to a different house. So why are you messing around in mine? Like yeah. that integrity still matters here. People, mm-hmm. we still have to answer to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we have a different idea of who God is in the world. Um, if, if you're acting like that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I have a lot of refre- reflections and, as you can tell, a lot of feelings <laughs> um, about this season in the life of the church. But what I'm really excited about is what we can be. Mm-hmm. And while at the same time I'm grieving for what we could have been, mm-hmm. I am excited for what we can be now. Yeah. And for yeah. who we can be and really mostly um to whom we can be. So um, I'm really excited about joining with others with God Mm -hmm. um, to be the church that we can be. Yeah. And that we, we really have been struggling to be Mm-hmm. Maybe for our entire history. Hmm. So, Jasmine, there's just so many things that I want to ask you. <laughs> but for <laughs> sake of time, let me just go in and on this. Like, we've got general conference coming up in April, May of 2024. So much is going to be before the general conference. But what do you think general conference 2024 needs to be about? Forgetting what is behind, press on. Mm. If we spend all our time moving backwards, if we spend all our time lamenting over disaffiliation, if we spend all our time talking about what we don't have, what we used to have, what we should have, we are sunk. However, if we choose to take care of the things that will continue to pull us backwards. Don't forget, we still got a traditional plan that Mm -hmm. is enacted in this church Mm -hmm. that needs to be cared for. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we look forward to what can be outside of the box of what is, then I think we have a fighting chance. Um, UMC Next did an incredible did some incredible work on hope and vision and what the church might look like moving forward. Um, that is in the DCA um, for general conference is the next generation legislation. And it's all about restructuring the church, um, reforming the church in deep and abiding ways, caring for all those pieces of yarn um, that, that we just talked about and making sure that it will pass the muster of judicial council. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And most of it, 99% of it, without um, constitutional amendments. But then embedded in it, there is work to look at the entire constitution, um, pull what is good and mm-hmm. work on what could be more Christ-like as we go forward. Yeah. <laughs> Jasmine, do you have hope 
for the United Methodist Church going forward? Oh, I couldn't be a part of the United Methodist Church if I didn't have hope for it. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm listening to to folks in other denominations who have had um, disaffiliations and disillusions and um, uh, breakups, whatever you want to call it. And I'm listening to them on the other side talk about how people are coming back, how um, it caused them to get really clear about what was important. And in that way, they were able to get healthier as a church. Um, to talk about the self um reflection that it has caused that it otherwise would not have caused in our clergy and in our lay people. Um, and, and to sort of call forth out of people a real defiance toward mission and ministry, like, mm. Oh, you're going to do this. Okay. So we're going to do what we do even better. Mm. Like, mm. We fed a hundred people last year. We're gonna feed two hundred people this Come year. Come on, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. I mean? um, and I love that. I'm here mm -hmm. for all of that, right? Um, what I am here for is people being in a relationship with Jesus Christ, in which they get to experience the abundant life that we have been promised right here and right now. And so we don't have to say, well, when I get to heaven, I guess I will experience Christ's abundant life. When Jesus came so that we can have life and have it in abundance, right here where we are. Um, so that's what I'm here for. So if it takes a little bit of moving around, of divorcing, of disaffiliating, of really taking inventory of what's important, then good. Because I want to get back to being the church of Jesus Christ. I want to get back to doing the work of transformation in community. I want there to be no homeless people who sleep on the front steps of Atlanta First United Methodist Church. That's yeah. what I care about. And that's mm -hmm. where I see the hope of the United Methodist Church, because the United Methodist Church is uniquely situated to do that in ways that are just mind-blowing, that we have not even tapped into mm. and um and i believe the united methodist church is uniquely situated to educate children in ways that can interrupt generational poverty and interrupt the the prison the school to prison pipeline i believe the united methodist church can make sure that no one is illiterate i believe the united methodist church can help people find jobs and skills that they never imagined that they would be able to do i believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the United Methodist Church can do anything but fail if we stick to the mission and the ministry and let all the other junk that we have allowed to become a distraction, let it go and get back to doing the work and be at the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So, yes, I have a great deal of hope for the United Methodist Church right here and right now and into the future. Mm -hmm. Reverend Jasmine Smothers, um, I know you officially did not graduate from the School of the Prophets, but good God, <laughs> it is it is in you. And 
You are a gift to the church, Jasmine, and I'm grateful for the spaces that you are able to shine your light. And I'm just looking forward to the new spaces that you'll be able to bring uh, fresh energy and fresh eyes um, and fresh hope. Amen. To the United Methodist Church. So thank you, Jasmine, for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. Um, this has been a gift. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's been a gift to me. So I want to thank you for that. And um, I also want to remember my brother, um, Reverend Dr. Junius Dotson, who yes. um, has been fearless leader to so many of us and really cast an undeniable, powerful achievable vision for the future of the United Methodist church Mm. and who gave me hope when I was ready to give up. Wow. So, um, so thank you for allowing me to be here today. Mm. Um, Thank you for this opportunity to just talk shop. Yeah. Yeah. um, And I, I, you're a blessing. I'm trying. um, (laughs) We're going to run on and see what the ends are going to (laughs) be. Keep on running. Thanks so much, Jasmine. (laughs) Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.